you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. If you're using the U version, it's not on there this week. We had technical difficulties, so you've got to go back to a Bible, all right? So this week, that means if I see you looking at your phone, it means you're looking at your phone and not doing the Bible version app, all right? So we're going to talk today about uh, the second temptation of Christ, about what that means for our lives, about how we uh, respond to the temptation, what it looks like in our life, and how we respond to it. And uh, I was thinking this week in, in preparing about the strange thing that happens when we sleep and we dream, all right? How many of you in this room remember your dreams pretty frequently, all right? How many of you uh, remember every now and then? All right. And how many of you, like, maybe once every year or two? You don't remember much at all. All right. There are a couple of us. Uh, I, I'm one of those, and it's every now and then. And uh, I, I was uh, reading some stuff on dreams, and uh, here was the technical definition of dreams given in one place Dreams are successions of images, ideas, emotions, and sensations occurring involuntarily in the mind during certain stages of sleep. Now, that's kind of boring, isn't it? Is that how dreams feel? When you're in a dream, you think they're real. Uh, um, We have some people in our house that uh, will remain nameless but are younger than me and my wife and are males, all right? That they... uh, dream out loud sometimes. Now, some people call that sleep talking or sleep walking. Um, with my boys, I've had sleep fighting and sleep arguing, all right? And when you're in the midst of a dream, it's very real. It feels like you're actually there. You don't have any concept that you are not in the dream. And sometimes dreams are crazy. Anybody here have crazy dreams occasionally? All right, here's what I want you to do in a minute. You've got to be prepared to share this. So I want you to think of a crazy dream you've had recently. Now, if you're one of those people that, you know, you don't remember any dreams you ever have, just make something up, all right? I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. But think of a crazy dream. And they tell us that sometimes our dreams have meanings. Sometimes they mean something. Now, there are some dreams that I know don't have any meaning. Uh, last week I dreamed I was flying over Dyersburg in a Ford truck. Driving the Ford truck was my uh, was the organist from the church I grew up in, Miss Betty Jones. And we were flying down the Highway 51 in, in Dyersburg. You don't know where that is, but I can visualize it. And we landed there because we were going to watch the space shuttle take off from my old high school. All right? Now, that... Doesn't make any sense, okay? But there are some dreams that do make sense. Before I give you some dreams that that have some meaning, I want you to just tell somebody around you about a crazy dream you've had, all right? So turn around, share something. Somebody around you, crazy dream you've had in your life, all right? All right, let's, let's get back together. Now that you know how completely strange your neighbor is, there are some dreams that are pretty common, okay? I'm going to give you three today. There are more than this. But one of the most common dreams is having the sensation of falling. How many of you ever dream that you're 
falling off a cliff or you're you're running and suddenly you're falling. You're in a car, you're in a plane and you're falling. That's one of the most common dreams. A, a second common dream is being chased. All right. So somebody's after you, either a wild animals after you or um, the authorities are after you or uh, I don't know. Your wife with a frying pan is after you. I don't know. There's. Um, there's some kind of somebody chasing you. And then the third most common dream, uh, as these researchers have discovered. By the way, some people say they know what all these mean, and other people say we don't have a clue. All right? The third most common dream is, even for adults, is showing up at school, and you got a test that day that you didn't know about. Or showing up at school and you forgot something like like your pants all right and you realize suddenly oh my goodness all right and so the, they think they know the people that kind of study these things they think they kind of understand that okay i mean i have that dream i still dream sometimes i'm in high school and i sit down or i'm at seminary and i sit down and they there's a test sitting on the and you know, i didn't know it was test day today forget the fact i'm 35 years old and been out of high school for 17 years like i didn't realize we had a test today um or there, there are times now that I, I dream that I'm, I'm standing before you and I think, I don't even have a sermon prepared. Now, some of you think, well, that, that's pretty much every week, Pastor. But I mean, like I really don't have a sermon prepared, all right? And so they think that what that means is that there's something in your life that you feel nervous about because you're unprepared for it. Or you need to have assurance that everything's going to be okay. All right. And so there's this idea there that we have a desire for security. Now, we're going to see that in the second temptation of Christ. And we're going to talk about the need in our lives to be secure in who we are and in our desire for everyone else to know that we're right in what we think or believe or the way we act. Now, we were talking about the temptations of Christ, and before we move to the second one, I just want to review what we talked about last week briefly. Because I want us to build these things each week. It's going to be short because next week is the third temptation, and that's the last of the three. And then the week after that, we're going to wrap it up. So there's only two more weeks, so we're right in the middle. And I don't want us to forget kind of what's there, mainly because the ideas behind each temptation really flow into one another. And last week we talked about this phrase. At the end of the thing, I gave you this and wanted to remind you of it, is that the first temptation of Christ is all about the fact that we shouldn't sacrifice tomorrow to be satisfied today. If you remember that Jesus was hungry, had been fasting for 40 days, and Satan says, look, there's some, some stones over there. Just make that bread. Fulfill your desire today. And we talked about if Jesus would have done that, he would have sacrificed his future, and ours. Remember, we talked about Jacob and Esau, and Esau was a guy that was in line to have the birthright and to be the one through whom God blessed the entire world. And Jacob sacri- I mean, Esau sacrificed his entire future and place in history for a bowl of stew. We're faced with decisions every day that if we don't make them in the right way, if we don't follow the Lord... We will sacrifice our future, our families, our faith to satisfy today and sacrifice tomorrow. 
I thought about this week how even our world understands that this isn't true. And as I was thinking about it, I got up this morning and I looked on my Twitter feed and there was a tweet from not, this was, it was actually, some of you don't know Twitter, you won't care about it. There's a retweet from somebody who was quoting somebody. But I went back to the person that, that tweeted this morning and I wanted to show you this. I found it this morning and I don't know who Tim Gatos is. He's apparently a pastor. But he says, this quote was from Jim Carrey, and I found it sourced in several places. You know Jim Carrey, right? The actor, comedian, Ace Ventura, The Mask. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Even if you satisfied every desire you have today, it's not the answer. So that was the first temptation. Satan says, here you go, have some bread, make those stones into bread. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay? Let's read starting in chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. And had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, I just want to make sure we understand that this is the holiest kind of place in all the world. God's, uh, God's presence was in the place of the temple in the city of God of Jerusalem. This was like the holiest place in the world. Now, we are not told here how they got there or how they were there. We don't know if this was kind of a vision that they were allowed to see. We don't know if Jesus is actually there physically. Um, we don't know if, if Satan, how they got there, if they walked. And we don't know if it was kind of a Star Trek moment and they were in the wilderness and then bang, beam me up, they're in the top of the temple. We don't know how they got there, but the point is they're there. And Satan looks out and says to him, If, if, if you're the Son of God, just throw yourself down. And then he decides he'd be a preacher for a minute. Jesus used Scripture. You know what? I'll use some too. He said, For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now here's the thing. Satan is quoting a psalm. Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is a psalm that says exactly what he says here. He doesn't twist the words. He doesn't maneuver the words. He doesn't take words from a different part and put it here. He quotes Psalm 91 as any preacher preaching Psalm 91 that is faithful to the text would preach it and quote it today. And the way he's saying it is, the Bible says if you trust in the Lord, you won't be harmed. That if you are the called one of God, if you're the son of God, if you are who you say you are, if you are who God says you are, you won't ever have to worry about anything bad happening to you. Just jump. Because if you jump and you're the Lord's son, you'll be protected. Think about it for a minute. Jesus is standing. Anybody here scared of heights? I say I'm not scared of heights until I get really high. All right? I'm not scared of like three floors up, but I get seven, eight, nine stories high. I'm scared of heights. Jesus wouldn't have been seven, eight, nine stories high. They didn't have buildings at all, but he would have been at the top of what he could see right then. And he looks down, and there are people all in the streets, and Satan kind of says, listen, this is all you have to do. 
Psalm 91 that he quotes from is really a, a psalm about man's fear and God's protection. And what Satan is saying to him is, basically, if you're God's son, just prove it. Just prove it. It's almost as if, um, uh, now that my boys are growing up, uh, we, they, we play a lot, we, we kind of wrestle around a lot, and sometimes we get to play and catch. And Luke is pretty good about sometimes deciding it's time for me to play catch when I'm not quite ready to play catch yet. And so he'll take a ball and he's got it, and he'll go, he'll throw it at me like, Daddy! You know, I mean, sometimes when you're growing up and you're trying to get it on your friends, you'll say, hey, think fast, and throw the ball real fast, and you either think fast or you get hit, right? And so it's kind of that, it's kind of, you feel almost like Satan is saying, just, just say to God, hey, hey, God, think fast, here I go. Now, here's the thing. I want to be real honest about this part. Of the three temptations, this is the hardest one for me to get my mind around. Because it just sounds like Satan's game to do a magic trick. Like, hey, Jesus, it'd be cool. Just show. Just jump. Be, everything's going to be okay. You're God. Nothing bad's going to happen. Just jump. And this week, as I began to study, I began to realize that there are issues going on much deeper than just a simple magic trick happening here. Jesus answered him. It is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, that's a quote out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there, Moses is telling the people there, Do not put the Lord your test as your ancestors did. And the story that it's referencing is Exodus chapter 17. And you can just write that down and look at it later. We're going to have it on the screen. I'm going to tell you the story. But in Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites have been pushed out into the desert. They've been pushed out into the wilderness. They're wandering around. And suddenly they realize, we don't have any water. We're thirsty. Now, Scripture seems to suggest they weren't at the point of death thirsty. They were just thirsty. And they go to Moses and say, Moses, we need some water. Tell God to get us some water. And Moses says, well, why are you going to do that? What do you mean? They say, we don't understand it. Why in the world did God bring us out here and leave us to die? Their basic thing is, if God cared about us, he'd give us water. Why don't we have water? God doesn't care about us. Tell him we want water. So as they do that discussion, finally Moses goes to the Lord. God says to Moses, go over to that rock, strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water will come gushing out. And then at the end of it, Moses named the place, he said, the place of testing. Because the Israelites tested the Lord. Now, here's the reality. When you test the Lord... You're not trusting the Lord. When you test Him, you're not trusting Him. And the temptation for Jesus is to validate who He is as the Son of God and to prove that He's right to the people that are around Him. When Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, what He's saying is, I trust the Lord completely, no matter whatever else happens, that I am who He says I am, And that he will fight for me and prove to be right in the end. I don't have to test him on that. There are really two things that Jesus did here that we need to do as well. If we're going to make it through temptations that come in our lives. And the first thing is, we have to remember who we are. Look, again, we talk about this every week. Every week since we started this series, we've seen this. Where Satan comes to him and the first thing he says is, 
if you are the Son of God. Now, the truth is, we remember that just before he went out into the wilderness, he was baptized, and at his baptism, as he came up out of the water, God proclaimed, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased, whom I love. So Jesus had this affirmation from the Lord that this is my son. So he gets out in the wilderness and Satan says, why don't you have God prove that you're his son? Just prove it. Satan wanted Jesus to prove God's love. Just jump. When you jump, God will take care of you. I mean, where has God been for the last 40 days? You've been out here in this wilderness You're hungry, you're tired, you're thirsty, you want to go home, you want to finish this off, you've been out here, what are you preparing for? Where is God when you need Him? Just jump and prove that you are God's Son. Trust. doesn't have to be an issue if you'll jump and prove it. Now, you say, well, how in the world does that... I mean, I've never been tempted to get up on a building and jump to see if God will catch me. The issue here is that Satan was telling Jesus... Why don't you ask God for a little proof that He loves you? Now, here's the way that works out in our lives. It really depends on kind of where you are with the Lord. People that haven't quite accepted who Jesus is yet sometimes demand a sign or something to know that it's true. God, if you just prove it to me, if you just write it in the sky, if you just tell me, if you just send me a letter, if you would send somebody right now that would explain it to me, or if you would just give me the airtight defense of exactly why it's true. Um, when I was in Ripley, we had a couple, and I've told some of you this story, we had a couple that uh, came to our church and started coming to our church, and he, uh, he called me up and said, hey, I, I'm adjusting to a new job. They moved into Ripley. He was working in Memphis. He said, but I've got some time off, and uh, I want to take you to lunch. Uh, we came to church on Sunday. You said some real interesting things. Uh, I want to go to lunch. And so we went to the local Chinese restaurant in Ripley. Okay? It's this place. And we sat down and we ate. And um, in the middle of it, we started talking. And he said, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I said, all right. I don't need a lot of prompting when somebody says that. So we started to talk and found out he was raised Jewish. He had not accepted the Lord. His wife had made a public profession of faith, but he had not. And they were they were ha- they were having kids. They had kids, and there was some discussion in their house about how the kids were going to be raised. And he wanted to go through a whole discussion with me about Jesus. So we we got into it, and we started getting in pretty good. About halfway into the the meal, he just kind of I could tell began to shut down and decided to take it in a different direction. He had actually gone to Knoxville, had a brother that had played some sports at, at UT, and we started talking about Tennessee stuff. Okay. And I could just sense that he wasn't ready for me to kind of push, and so we kind of left it there. I didn't know what that would lead to, but a, a little while later, a couple, a couple of weeks, three weeks, I, I'm not real sure of the timing, he called me back and he said, hey, hey, I was wondering if we could go eat again. I said, sure, I'd, you know, I'd like to continue our conversation about Jesus. I said, that's great. And he said, listen, um, I work in, I'm, wor- I'm working in Memphis now, and I'm going to be down there. He goes, I, I've, come in, uh, I've come into some tickets to the Grizzlies game down here. I thought maybe you could just meet me here and we'd go to the Grizzlies game. But before that, he goes, I've heard you've been to Brazil. And I don't know if you know this, they've got a Brazilian steakhouse. I want to take you out for supper to the Brazilian steakhouse down here. Now, there are several things in that invitation that said this is something I must do. All right? Okay. First of all, how many of you have ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse? All right? Let me just tell you, praise God from whom all blessings flow. All right? 
the, the real things are great. The American knockoffs are great as well. It's all you can eat meat. Okay? That's it. They bring it around. They feed you till you say stop. Okay? Uh, they, in, in a lot of them, now, in the one we eat in Brazil now, they don't do this, but they, in all the rest of them I've eaten, they've got a green thing on one side and a red, and on your table, as long as it's on green, they're bringing you food, and when you're done, you turn it to red. All right? That's how they know. It's unbelievable. So said, we're going, we're going, uh, we're going down there, and then we're going to the Grizzlies game. Now, that, that sounds better today as the Grizzlies are getting ready to play a game seven than it did back then, because back then they were terrible. All right? They were playing. Anybody seen the pyramid in Memphis? The, the pyramid looks great from the outside. It is horrible to watch anything in. Just terrible. But still, it was a Grizzlies game. And he said, I want to continue our conversation about Jesus. So well, this is great. So we went. We ate. We had a good meal. I tried to bring it up a couple of times. He kind of pushed it away. We, we, we got to the game. We were sitting right on the front row of the second level. Had great seats. First quarter, we were into the game. And the second quarter, about middle of the quarter, he just turns to me and says, Lyle, all right, I want to talk to you about something. I say, I'm ready. He said, you know, I almost accepted Jesus once. I said, you did? Tell me about that. He said, well, we were at this passion play. He goes, I don't know if you've ever been to these things, but they do the whole story of Jesus. He said, and we were outside in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And it was this play, and in the middle of it, I just felt something inside of me that was like, i gotta get, I got to find out if this is real or not. And, I, you know, in the church we call that conviction, but he didn't know what to call it. He said, and so I'm watching this thing, and I just say, God, if this is true, i got to have a sign right now from heaven. And he said, it was a clear, sunny day, and off in the distance I saw a lightning strike at that moment. And I said, well, why didn't you accept the Lord? He said, because I reasoned in my mind it wasn't close enough, so it probably wasn't God. Now, I don't know whether it was from God or not, but he was waiting until he got confirmation in his life before he trusted. And here's the thing. If there's somebody out there that you've been thinking about accepting the Lord or you don't even really know all that that means, you're never going to have every question you have answered. You're not. It's a matter of faith and trust. Now, as believers who are most of you in this room, we do this in different ways. We want signs that our relationship with the Lord is okay. So, so there are people that spend their whole lives wondering, am I really saved? Am I, am I really one of God's children? Am I really who I am? And so you, you think, well, well, maybe I didn't say the prayer the right way, or maybe I didn't walk the aisle in the right church, or, or maybe I didn't do the right things, or, or maybe I... And so you look for that assurance from some place that it's the right thing at the right time, in the right place, with the right words, with the right attitude, and you want some magical formula to assure you it's right. That's not faith. Or you think, if God loves me, if God loves me, then... This ought to be happening in my life. If God loves me, I wouldn't lose my job. If God loves me, that guy wouldn't do that to me. If God loves me, my spouse wouldn't act that way. If God loves me, God, show me that you do. We begin to bargain with Him. After service this morning, um, one of our members came up to me. And they've got a, a situation going on in their, their family. It's a serious situation, physical health situation. 
And she just said to me, you know, she said, it, it is so subtle the way we do it. She, she goes, sometimes when I'm praying for my son, she says, I think, and I say almost to God, God, I've done so much for you. Why don't you show me that you love me by doing this for me? God, I have served you so much. Can't you just do this one thing? You see, the thing is, where we mess it up in our lives when we do that is we realize, and what Jesus realized and the Israelites did not, is what we're really asking for is another sign, not a sign. I mean, the Israelites in the wilderness warning water saying we need a sign from God. They had already received the cloud that protected them. They had received the fire that guided them. They received the Red Sea being split apart. They had received the words of God, the leader of God, being the people of God. And they said, that's still not enough. What Satan was offering for Jesus was to say, just prove it. Where this really kind of impacts us is this desire that we have in our lives to monitor our relationship with the Lord. We monitor everything in our lives these days. I have this device in my pocket that stays in my pocket. And it is a phone, but I use it as a phone very, very little. And I have apps on this phone that can help me monitor different things in my life. I've got an app on here that's for my diabetes that I can monitor blood sugars if I need to use it, or I can put them in, I can get a graph of it, I can get all the information I want about how my physical health is doing. I've got an app on here that's, that reminds me if my bank balance gets too low, or if uh, there's a check that's being written that they're not real sure about, it sends me a message. I even had an app on here that I could check my retirement at any time I wanted to. Now, I am 35 years old. The way the current government is going, I will not be able to retire until I'm 148, all right? Now, that's a little hyperbolic, but not much. It does me no good to find out what my retirement is now. But I would get on there every day, look, ooh, I lost $200. Man, I gained 500 Now, people, they tell me my age to do what? Put it in there and forget it. That's what they tell you, all right? Just let it go. But we wanted, it's almost like I've got my life set up in a hospital room and i got monitors on everything that matters. But we really can't monitor our relationship with the Lord. Well, we try. Well, I've done this and this and this and this, so the Lord must be happy with me right now. I haven't done this or that or that, and so He must be good with me right now. But those are superficial things we've set up. That doesn't monitor our relationship with the Lord. And what Satan offers Jesus at this moment is, just jump and you'll find out where you stand and who you are. Jesus didn't need that. When he came up out of the water, God said, This is my son. And when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the grave and he proclaimed in his word his love for you, you can rest assured in that God loves you and you don't have to have any proof of it. He's given us all we need. Now, here's the second thing. We need to remember who we are. And the second thing is, we need to trust in the Lord's vindication. Now, vindication is one of those words we don't use a lot anymore. But it means just being proven right. And what he was also offering Jesus in this moment is to go ahead and prove that he was right. 
Here's the idea, literally. He's looking down, and as he's looking down, I don't believe that, whether in spirit or in physical presence, he looked down and saw empty streets. I think he saw streets teeming with people in Jerusalem. And as he's standing there, what Satan is basically saying to him is, Hey, Jesus, guess what? You and I both know. We've been around this long enough to know this. That for the next few years, you're going to spend your life trying to convince these people you are who you are. You're going to teach them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to try to convince them. You're going to try to persuade them. And we've been around this long enough to know that I know and you know they're not going to listen. You can tell them all you want to. I'm the son of God. Great. That's good. I'm glad you've got that in. I'm the Messiah. Wow, you're the third one this year. That is amazing. No, he's just doing magic tricks over there. He ain't really healing those people. That, that stuff doesn't matter. Jesus, you know they're not going to listen. So here's your chance. Jump. And when the people down there see the Lord rescue you, instantly they believe. Instantly they know this one's different. Sometimes when I'm watching television, I get angry. When I'm watching the news or I'm watching programs and people begin to discuss what Christians believe or how they act. And I'm watching the television and sometimes in my mind I'm saying to myself, we are not that dumb. We are not that naive. We are not that mean. We're not that callous. We're right. You're wrong. I don't usually yell it out loud because then the family would wonder what in the world's going on with Lyle. But I feel it. Does anybody ever feel that way? I mean, they depict us. It's, you know, it's just, that's, that's not who I am. Even sometimes with people, they get on there that say that they are preachers or followers of Jesus. And they start to talk and I'm going, that's not who I am. Now, sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's not so subtle. But I want to say that that's not who I am. And I realize that part of what is rising up with me is this desire to let everybody know I'm right. Now, now there's a part of me that's, I want everybody to understand who God is, but there's also a part that's like, I want everybody to know I'm right. Sometimes in school, I remember being in high school and and seeing all my friends that weren't following the Lord, and they'd go out and have a good time and party and do all this stuff, and and they'd come back, and it didn't seem to affect them in any way. And I felt like David in the Psalms saying, God, why do the wicked prosper? And I'm the one that's right. What Satan was offering Jesus was the ability to show everybody, I'm right. You ever had anybody criticize you for something that's not true? Say something about you that's not right, or say you felt something you didn't feel. Let me tell you something. When you're a preacher, I know that being a preacher, you would think that would not be how people operate about you, but you deal with people that assign motives to things that you never intended. Well, he must have meant this. No, I didn't. And sometimes in the midst of that, it takes everything you can to fight back saying, I'm right, that's not what's true. What Satan was offering Jesus was to say, listen, all you got to do is jump. And when you jump and the Lord saves you, guess what? You ain't got to struggle to convince people. <laughs> they won't talk about you behind your back. They, they won't gather together and figure out ways to question you, to trick you. They, they won't uh, 
keep accusing you of being in the company of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes because you won't have to be. Now, now you know when they said he keeps company with tax collectors and sinners that they weren't just saying he likes to hang around those folks. What they meant was you are the company you keep. You won't have to deal with betrayal from one of your 12 best friends. You won't have to deal with beatings and crucifixion and death. You can be proven right right now. Just jump. Jesus basically says, I trust the Lord to prove I'm right. And you and I must be in a place where we surrender completely to the Lord and we trust Him. When He says, do not test the Lord, do not put the Lord your God to the test, what He means there is you trust and obey. You live under the reality that God is the one that's controlling life. You don't have the sense to be made right. You trust Him. Here's the last thing I'm going to say and then we're going to close. The point for today is that in life, as we live for the Lord, we must not manipulate or try to manipulate Him, but we cooperate in His plan. We don't manipulate Him, we cooperate. Now, some people think that Jesus was tempted three times and that was it. I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say before, I'll tell you what, I mean, Jesus did a good job resisting those temptations, but if I was only tempted three times, I might be able to make it through that. I'm tempted all the time. The point here is not that Jesus had three temptations in life and he finished the test and he's done. In fact, if you look at this, I believe that there is a very clear moment when the second temptation is brought back to Jesus in his final moments on earth. Remember when Jesus is on the cross? People are gathered around and they're mocking him. What do they say to him? Hey, you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? Just jump down off that cross. Angels will come attend to you. They'll take care of you. Just jump down. Prove to us who you are. Don't deal with all that stuff. Prove you're right. And he just did what the Lord called him to do. His identity was confirmed and his righteousness was proclaimed. But it came after the death, not before it. For three days later, while the tomb sat there, if you'd have been there the day before, you would have seen the dead body of the one that is tempted here. But on that morning, he had been validated and vindicated. And as he rose from the grave, what he also showed to us is that we will have the same. Here's the beautiful thing about Scripture. Throughout Scripture, it talks about that one day we who are followers of Jesus Christ will be shown before the world that we are right. Now, it won't be so that we can all stand and go, ha, ha, look at me. I was right. You were wrong. Told you so. We'll be marveling in the glory of God. But we will be vindicated. The question is, will you trust the Lord to do it in His way? Or are you trying to figure out how to get it done in your own way?